Okay, so Mark chapter 16, hopefully you're all there. The early Christians in the first century, they faced, they faced being mocked, they faced being misunderstood, they faced being misrepresented in the culture, being thrown in prison, threats of violence, they even faced death itself. And yet these believers faithfully and boldly preached the gospel. And the question that we're answering in these few weeks preceding Acts is, is how? Like, what was it that made them so faithful and bold? I failed to explain the the main image here last week, and I just wanted to, to make a comment on it today. You can see it's it's an iceberg. Icebergs are kind of known for, you can only see above the surface, a very small portion of what the iceberg actually is. And in my mind, that's kind of like the church in the book of Acts, is the tip of the iceberg. And the church now is everything that you see underneath. It has grown and by God's grace continues to grow. And so that's why you see that. And so these these last week and this week and the next two weeks, we're going to look through the Gospels, the end chapters of the Gospels, to try to see where did these early Christians, where did the early church's motivation come from, okay? And so we want to swing through these last chapters to look for that answer because something changed, right? And and we'll see this in the text in Mark as well. Something changed to turn these guys who were hiding in a room after Jesus was crucified to going out and literally dying for his name. That's a shift that is more than just like, hey, let's go play a, a trick and steal his body and tell people he's risen. Like, you don't have people dying for a lie like that. But for the truth, you do, and that's what we see. So something changed in these followers of Jesus. Last week we were in Matthew, and the main point was that the, the faithfulness and boldness of the followers of Jesus there that Matthew records are a d- direct result of the authority of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, that's going to be a theme that you'll see as we go through the Gospels, obviously. But we come to the second of the Gospels, and that's the book of Mark. Before we read, I just want you to glance down to kind of the middle of the chapter. There is a note that we need to make note of. Most of your English translations are going to have either in brackets or starting with verse 9 have some kind of a an asterisk or something that says something like uh, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Okay, so that's probably what many of your notes say. And so... We need to, we need to kind of explain this and try to understand what's going on here before we look at the full text. Um, but I want you to understand that my goal is, is not to teach some kind of a Bible scholar class here, a Greek or, cause I, I'm not equipped to do that. My, my goal is not even to try to convince you of anything except that, as Jason prayed, what we have before us is the inspired Word of God. And so, with that, we need to kind of talk about what's what's going on in these verses. Textual criticism is a phrase you may or may not have been uh, exposed to. It's basically just a method that's used to determine what the original manuscripts of the Bible say or said. Okay? And as you can imagine, as Jason's illustration with the kids pointed out, the physical original manuscripts that were written by these biblical authors are not available to us today. They've, they've been lost or destroyed or something like that. We just don't have access to them. And so we've got copies of these original documents. Now, 
Uh, if you looked at the end of John chapter 7, the beginning of John chapter 8, we see another situation like this in Mark 16 of the two biggest things called textual variants. Okay, there are, I think, literally hundreds of thousands of variants in the New Testament Greek scriptures. The vast majority of those is um, kind of like he said, a scribe got a gnat in their nose and one letter got changed. Well, with context and comparing it with the other thousands of manuscripts of copies, you can see, okay, this word doesn't mean donkey. This This word should mean love or something totally out of context that you know, okay, this can't be quite right. We need to understand this. And so we compare. So these are, these are called textual variants. And like I said, most of them are the difference between just a couple of letters. Um, could be even like in the English language, we would say an apple, not a apple. Okay. You, you understand the, what they're saying, but it's not quite right. And that's what the vast majority of these things are. Again, the two biggest ones here in Mark 16, also in John, the end of chapter 7. The good thing about what we have access to is that there are literally over 5,800 verified Greek manuscripts of the New Testament available to us. Okay, so these are copies. But in reality, this makes the Bible the most preserved document that we have from ancient times, from that era of writing. You guys have heard of the author Homer and his work, the Iliad. There are only 640-something copies of that work. And yet no one, no one denies the legitimacy of that being written by him. We have over 5,800 copies of the Greek New Testament. Okay, so there's obviously a lot of evidence that we can stake our claim in as far as the Bible being real and uh, reputable. The, the mountain of evidence is on the side of Scripture here. And I just want to be clear on that. But, as I said earlier, I'm just a student of the Word like you. I don't have degrees in Greek or anything like that. So we're working on what many people have come and done before us. Um, I, but I want to simplify this as most basically as I can. So simply put, some ancient manuscripts that we have access to, a couple of the oldest ones, don't have verses 9 through 20 recorded in them. There are other manuscripts that do. They don't date quite back as old. And this is virtually, um, this is why Virtually all of your English translations have this note here. Just to say, hey, something happened. We don't exactly know. But here's the information. The words have been preserved as we see them here. But they were put in brackets saying, we're not quite sure. And that's kind of what it goes. So I'm going to refer to this in brackets as the longer ending of Mark. Okay? The first eight verses, we know there's no dispute. There's no Nothing, no problem there. But 9 through 20 is kind of the longer ending that some people are like, I'm not sure if that was in Mark's original manuscript. Now, older, just because it's, we have manuscripts that don't have it and they're older, doesn't necessarily mean better, but it, it's significant, I think. There's also um, evidence that there are words and phrases in these verses, 9 through 20, that that just 
Mark doesn't use in any of the rest of his gospel. And so you could look at that and say, well, why would he start introducing a bunch of new language right at the end in a pretty important record of the resurrection of Jesus? Some scholars believe that the ending of the true ending of Mark was lost. And so this is how some ancient theologians or scribes decided to try to compensate for such an abrupt ending um, in verse eight. Now, you can imagine we've just scratched the surface on on what what this is and what this means for us. Um, This can be an exhausting kind of a, a discussion. I don't I don't hope that it is. Um, but it can be, and, and just know that we've been talking about this as followers of Jesus for hundreds of years now. I don't expect to blaze any new trails here this morning, except to say uh, that regardless of your personal opinions on these things, I, I, I want to be clear, properly understood, no, nothing involved in verses 9 through 20 Uh, I think, are problematic or contrary to the rest of Scripture in these verses. If we understand them properly, if we interpret them well, I don't think there's anything here that we should be upset about or concerned about. But just like about anything else in the Word of God, if you stretch something beyond its meaning or you pull it out of the context of the rest of Scripture, you can get in some dangerous places. You can start to get in trouble and put yourself at risk spiritually, and we'll see maybe from the text today, even physically, put yourself at risk. You'll understand, I think, more when we get to a certain part about that. So let's let's just take, take a moment and let's read. We're going to read all 20 verses, and then we'll ask really ask the Lord's blessing on our time together for understanding. So let's read Mark chapter 16 together. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went out to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at a table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. 
Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your your blessing and your help understanding every week as we get to this point and we read your word. Today we really need it, Lord. Um, just because of, of some of the difficulty of of history and translation and copies and, and these things, Lord, I, I pray that you would bolster our faith today, remembering that there are this many uh, agreeing copies that we should continue to have faith in your flawless word. I thank you that through the ages, in your wisdom, grace, and providence, you have seen fit to, to give us the word that we have access to now. And we do believe that it is good and perfect and acceptable and pleasing and profitable for all of what we need in life. And so I pray that as we work through these verses today for understanding and for um, really a, a love for your word that is just deepened by our time together in it today. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now look at verse 8 again. If we were to end it here and take this as the intended meaning, meaning Mark's gospel seems to begin or to end in a pretty anticlimactic way, doesn't it? Well, the ladies see the angel in the tomb and now they're afraid. The end. Okay? It's they're amazed, but they're afraid. This does seem abrupt, but I, I just want to point out, Look, flip back to Mark chapter 1, the very first verse of Mark's gospel. Mark identifies the book here. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is, is Mark does not include any record of the birth of Jesus. Like, like Matthew does, Mark does not include any of Jesus' genealogy. In his account, you just jump right in to the story. There's a, there's a small prophecy about John the Baptist here in verse two from Isaiah, but he just, Mark just jumps right into the story of Jesus and John the Baptist as grown men starting the ministry. It's kind of abrupt, isn't it? Here's the story. So, I don't know that verse 8 of chapter 16 is all that abrupt when you consider kind of how Mark starts his gospel here. Especially when you compare it with the other gospel accounts, both those things would be strange and unusual, but they would fit to what Mark is trying to do here. Now, if we look at verse 19 through 20, I, I think we can say that there's some obvious consistency here with the other gospel accounts. I just want to walk through this together so that we have confidence in what the Lord has given us. Look at verses 9 through 11 here of Mark 16. The women go to tell the disciples that Jesus is alive, and what do the disciples respond with? 
I'm not going to believe it. Matthew recorded that. Remember last week I said that Doubting Thomas isn't probably the only one who should have been given that nickname. These guys couldn't believe it. It was so fantastic and true and they just were not expecting it that they they doubted, it says. You can see this also in Luke chapter 24. Look at Mark 16, 12 and 13. Jesus appears to a couple of other disciples on the road. This is recorded in Luke 24 as the road to Emmaus. You've probably read that account before. Jesus appears, has a whole conversation with them. They don't realize it's him. That's recorded there. So this is also consistent with the other gospel accounts. Look at verse 14 of Mark 16. Jesus does appear to the disciples. This is also Recorded in John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. The disciples are in a locked room. They're hiding. They're afraid. And Jesus appears to them. Look at verse 14. I'm sorry, 15 and 16 of Mark 16. Jesus sends the disciples out. He says, go and preach the gospel to all of creation. This is consistent with what we talked about last week, Matthew 28. Go ye therefore... Preach the gospel, baptizing them, teaching them, those sorts of things. Now, just to pause here in um, verse 16 of Mark 16, this idea about baptism, don't want to get any confusing thoughts going on here. He says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Um, I don't think this is teaching that baptism is a prerequisite to salvation, like only if you believe and are baptized are you then saved. I don't think that's what Jesus would be saying here. Uh, but I think of Matthew 28. What did, what did he say to them? He said, go, make disciples. And then what was the very first thing they were to do as making disciples? To baptize them. So I don't think we wouldn't teach that baptism is a prerequisite for salvation, but we would teach that it is a cl- in close connection with it. If you've been saved through faith, by grace through faith, you should be baptized. If you haven't, you shouldn't be. Baptism can be seen as a proof and an evidence of a life changed by God, and that's why we do it in such a public setting. Because those people are saying, God has changed me. The sacrifice of Jesus is true for me. I believe it, and I'm not the same person anymore. Second half of this verse is also consistent with the Gospels. It says, whoever does not believe will be condemned. Jesus says the same thing. John 3.18, right after the famous John 3.16, Jesus says, whoever, whoever believes in him, talking about the Son, talking about himself, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, Jesus says, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So baptism is something that every believer should do, but if a person doesn't believe, you can imagine no amount of dunking them under the water is going to make them a Christian. So if you believe, you should be baptized as a believer. If you don't truly believe, that water will not save you. Now, we move into probably the most difficult part of these verses, verse 17 and 18. There's some eye-raising details, if you will. Um, But I think they also make sense in light of other scripture. And I think that's the key to this, guys. If we were just to take these verses, we could come up with lots of unusual methods of worship 
and practice in the church. And some people have. And some people have died as a result of doing that sort of thing. And so what we want to make sure that we're doing is, okay, this says this. What does the rest of God's Word say? So that's a a Bible study, hopefully a pretty fundamental Bible study practice that we make is comparing Scripture with Scripture. Where else does it say this? What other principles like this are taught? Because Mark 16, verse 17, he starts, we'll just walk through this. He says, in my name, they will cast out demons. Okay, we, we see this happening through the Gospels while Jesus is there. But we also see this happen in the book of Acts, which we'll get to eventually. But Acts chapter 16, um, someone with a demon is following Paul around and Paul kind of has enough of it. He turns around and says, come out, and the demon leaves him. So this is, this is consistent. This is true. They will, they will cast out demons in his name. Next thing, it says that they will speak in new tongues. Acts chapter 2, right away in the book, we'll see this happen. The Spirit of God rushes uh, upon his people there, and they speak in languages they didn't even know they could speak in. And many hear it in their language and are convinced of the gospel. And so that checks out too. Now the next part says they'll pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And this is, this is where our eyebrows get real high and tight. You say, excuse me? Uh, some folks have taken this to mean that the church needs to bring in venomous snakes and handle them in order to prove faith, in order to prove their power over these things. The issue that I would have with that is that no other scripture instructs us to do that as God's people. It may seem like this might be saying that. I don't think it does. But no other scripture would say this. Now, I think that there's some evidence of this sort of thing happening, though, in the book of Acts. And you can keep your finger in Mark 16 if you want to go to Acts 28. Late in the book, Paul arrives on the island of Malta. And it's cold and it's rainy, and so they're getting firewood. And he grabs a bundle of wood and he tosses it into the fire. And apparently there was a a viper, a venomous snake, on the wood. And when it got hot in the fire, it leapt out of the fire and attached itself to Paul's hand. Okay? Um, The text says fastened to his hand. Uh, It's not totally clear from the Greek if that means that it just wrapped itself around his hand or it actually bit his hand. We know that vipers aren't constrictors because they have venom. So I think it's, we're right to say this snake jumped up out of the fire and bit Paul in the hand. And if you're looking through that story, it's interesting because the locals who are there on Malta, they see this happen and they think, this guy must be a murderer. He's being judged right now. He might have made it through the ship journey, but now they say justice has found him out and he's going to die. And then a couple verses later, it says that they're waiting for him to like swell up and die, fall over dead. Well, what happens? Paul, I don't, I don't exactly know. All, we, all it says is that Paul shook the snake off and nothing happened. He, he shook it off into the fire and he is unharmed. And the people, the locals who are looking there, expecting him to die because of the venom in the snake, they look at him and they say, something is different about this guy. 
Now, they make the wrong assumption that he was a god, and so Paul has to straighten them out on that. But they look at him and they say, he should have died from this. Now, we know, or we expect, that they saw this happen before, right? You get bit by the snake, and within moments, you're going to die. Because they were sitting there waiting for him to, to fall over. But he didn't. And so they say, whoa, there's something different here. Now, here's, here's the, the kind of the, the crux of this. Did Paul go and rustle up a pit viper? To handle in front of these local people of Malta to show them that he was different? Not at all. He doesn't do this. He just is simply gathering wood for the fire. He didn't also knowingly down a cup of poison either. He didn't do any of these things. He doesn't seek these things out. In fact, I would say in the text here, there's, there's no command in Mark 16, there's no command to pick up serpents or drink poison. There's simply just this confidence of protection that's consistent with the rest of scripture, with the rest of what the gospels say. I think if we want to be even clearer, we can think back to Jesus in Matthew 4 being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Do you remember what, what did Satan tempt him to do? Three things. He, he tempted him to turn stones into bread, right? He tempted him to throw himself off of the temple, expecting angels would save him. And then he also tempted Jesus to bow down and worship him. He said, if you worship me, I'll give you everything you see. And Jesus responds each time. He says, I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm not going to turn these stones into bread. I'm going to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm going to trust him. When Satan says, throw yourself off the temple, this is the important thing. What does Jesus respond? He says, no, I'm not going to put God to the test. And then the third thing, he says, no, I'm only going to worship God. I'm only, only going to serve him. So here's my point. If Jesus wasn't willing to test God in the desperate moments of his life, why would he instruct his people to test God in handling venomous snakes and drinking poison intentionally? Because I don't think he's intending that. I don't think that's what this is meaning. We could also think back to Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They were willing to be thrown into this fiery furnace instead of bow the knee to him. And it's interesting what they say. In Daniel 3, they say, Our God, whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if, if he doesn't save them from the fire, he, they say, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See, the, these guys were extremely confident that God would protect them. Probably much like Paul did on his missionary journey. He knew that God would be there with him. And these, these three men boldly say, we're not going to tempt the Lord. We're not going to, to, to bow down to an idol when we know that that's wrong. So they were willing to die. They knew though that even if they did physically burn, that they were still being delivered out of the hand of the king. Now in Paul's case, in Acts 28, He's simply following where the Lord was leading him, right? God had called him to go to certain places and he arrives in Malta where God had called him to. 
And even one of the scariest things that we can imagine, I hate snakes. And so being bitten by a poisonous snake freaks me out. Maybe you're the same. One of the scariest things that we can imagine, being shipwrecked, drowning in the ocean. All, Paul faced all of these things, all these scary things, but not even those things could stop the advancement of the gospel. And that's, I think, the point that Mark would be making in Mark chapter 16. Because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, Nothing will be able to stop the advancement of the gospel, including things like spiritual oppression, where he says casting out demons, as well as physical opposition like snakes, and then even like sickness, like he says in the next part of Mark chapter 16. He says they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. We see this happen several instances in the, in the book of Acts as well. And so we know that for those who are boldly going and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, sent by God with his power and authority, nothing can separate them from his love. Paul himself makes this really clear. Romans chapter 8, this is a, a verse you've probably heard before. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword or stoning or shipwrecked or snake bites. He doesn't say those last three things, but you can imagine he would be thinking of them as he's writing this. All of this stuff, none of it, none of it. No, he says in verse 39, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're understanding, I think, what Mark is trying to get at in these last few verses. We see all this stuff happen in the early church's experience. Now look back to Mark 16, if you're not already back there. Look at the last couple verses, 19 and 20. These verses finish the section with the ascension of Jesus, going back to heaven, sitting at the right hand of God. That's the place of authority. But notice also how it ends. Jesus is obedient to God, but also his followers are obedient to Christ. They go and they do as Jesus said. They went out and they preached everywhere. Now with all the talk of, of venomous snakes and textual variances and things like that, the last thing that I would want to do is to lose what I think is Mark's actual emphasis in this gospel. So whether you think the text should stop at verse 8 or whether you think it should go all the way through to verse 20, don't miss what Mark's getting at. What is he getting at? It's this. Kids, this is what we're listening for this morning. Mark wants to emphasize clearly and without any kind of doubt that Jesus is alive. Right? So whether you end in 8 or whether you end in 20, that's what Mark is saying. Jesus is alive and that's shocking. Because he was dead. And that doesn't normally happen. Dead people don't normally come back to life. So the ladies, they're heading to the tomb. And they're wondering on the way. They say, how are we going to get in? There's a big stone there. It's heavy. We can't roll it away. And they, they, they come to the tomb and they see this, this angel sitting in there. And they're afraid. And the angel says, hey, don't be afraid. And then he explains to these faithful ladies that Jesus no longer 
resides in that tomb. His body is not held by that tomb anymore. He's alive. I like what commentator James Edwards explains about this encounter. He says, the references to the place of his burial in Mark, in these last, or these first few verses of Mark, the references to the place of his burial and to Jesus as the crucified one are of crucial importance. The women are not directed to a mystical or even spiritual experience or to a magical encounter at all. They're directed specifically to Jesus who died by a crucifixion that they witnessed, who was buried in a place they witnessed, and now he's been resurrected. The one whom the angel invites them to see and know is the one whom they have seen and known. So in Mark's gospel account, I estimate this as the first post-resurrection proclamation of the gospel. Think about this. Look at what the angel said to the ladies. He said, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. You saw it. But then he said, he's not dead any longer. He's risen. And he invites them, see for yourself. He's not here. And then he says, he's going before you. You will see him, so go tell others. See how that's the gospel? Jesus died, but he's risen. Now go, now go tell others. James Edwards, same guy, he points out that this first post-resurrection proclamation of the gospel is preached from the empty tomb that both received and gave up the crucified one. I love that thought. At this moment and in this place, the women are witnessing the kingdom of God come with power. Because Jesus is no longer dead. He's alive. Now this stunned them. Obviously, we can see, if you end at verse 8, that's what this what, what we're left with. They were afraid. They were amazed. They were astonished. It stunned the women who visited the tomb. And it stunned the hiding disciples too, didn't it? They didn't want to believe it. One last thing to point out from Mark's gospel here and how maybe this might all make sense is that Mark's gospel is always moving quickly. Uh, just glance through. You can flip a few pages. Look at how many sentences start with the word and or now then or immediately. Mark's, there's something always happening. It's he's always on the move. Astonishment at the work of Jesus is revealed throughout Mark's gospel because he uses this kind of phrasing at least 16 times where they were astonished, they were amazed. So the description of the amazement of the women at the tomb is really pretty consistent with the rest of Mark's gospel, with the rest of his narrative. The women were amazed, the disciples were stunned, and it seems like None of them actually really expected a resurrection. But because they didn't expect it, it actually happening meant all that more, didn't it? Seems like no one really expected it, but that's what they got. And if we're, if we're really honest with ourselves, it's what we need too. It's what they needed. It's what we need too. We need a Savior who's overcome death who's put sin literally in the grave and overcome it. We need that kind of Savior. 
Because Christ has been raised from the dead physically, every Christian has confidence of being raised to new life when we believe. We can have that same confidence when we believe. So even if Mark, Mark's gospel ends abruptly at verse 8, it still reflects the fact that it's just the beginning of the good news. Just the beginning. Because Jesus' story now becomes our story and we take it up where Mark left it off. Jesus is alive. Even Jesus' closest friends didn't seem to know how to respond in those moments, though. The book of Acts, though, will show us eventually how they responded. And boy, we're looking forward to getting into Acts together. But the question for today that I want us to think through is simple. In light of all of this, the abruptness of Mark's gospel, the, the, um, the, the fact that Jesus raised physically from the dead and it stunned all of them. The fact that now where Mark leaves off, we are supposed to go and pick up. The question for us is how do we respond to a risen savior? The book of Acts is going to detail how his followers responded. How will your life be detailed? How you respond? How will you respond today to a risen Savior? Our hope and prayer is that you will respond by grace through faith in the one who has risen and confirmed that if you, when you believe, you also have the gift of eternal life. It can be yours today through Christ. As we pray and take the Lord's Supper, I would encourage you to consider this more. If this is something that the Spirit is working in you, on don't wait another day don't wait another hour respond by faith to the spirit and what he's calling you to do and to surrender to the lord jesus let's pray together lord may you be glorified in the reading and teaching of your word it makes way more sense than i could ever make or make it because it is your word and so I, I would pray, Lord, that as we consider how we respond to a Savior who's overcome sin and death and the grave, that we might not just want that same thing for us, Lord, but that we might actually just want Jesus and a relationship with Him. That we might see that He is better than all the things that this world might have to offer. That He is kinder than anything we could find here. That He completes us more than any other person that we could experience a relationship with. And so, Lord, as we really are astonished in the same way as these early believers were, Lord, I pray that we would be convinced of Your physical resurrection and that that might give us boldness to go and to preach to all of creation, the good news that Jesus is alive. Thank you. In his name we pray. Amen.